The WLIWFM studio in Southampton, New York on Thursday, September 28th, 2023. I'm Gianna Volpe. Suffolk County prosecutors revealed in court yesterday that suspected Gilgo Beach serial killer Rex A. Herman's DNA matches an earlier sample derived from a pizza crust and used napkin that prosecutors have said links Herman to the remains of one of three women he is charged with killing. Nicole Fuller reporting on Newsday.com that the new DNA evidence was part of a trove of more than 5,000 documents. The prosecutors turned over to Herman's defense team Wednesday when the Massapequa Park architect appeared briefly in a Riverhead courtroom for the third time. Since his July 13 arrest and the slayings of three women whose remains were found near Gilgo Beach beginning in 2010. The buccal swab or cheek swab obtained from Yerman last month matched a mitochondrial DNA profile developed from a pizza crust and used napkin. Yerman, who was being secretly surveyed by law enforcement at the time, allegedly discarded in Manhattan, which prosecutors have said could not be excluded as a match to a hair found at the bottom of a burlap used to restrain and transport the remains of one of the victims, Megan Waterman. Suffolk County District Attorney Ray Tierney said yesterday that the task force probing the killings has now expanded its focus beyond the initial four victims and is examining the killings of all 10 victims who authorities have said were killed by one or more serial killers. Michael J. Brown, Herman's lead attorney, said after court Wednesday, the prosecution's DNA evidence, which he has not yet seen, is not conclusive, and there's still a significant amount of people that can be a source of this hair. That quote from uh, Michael Brown. Herman's next court date is November 15th. In other news... Suffolk County District Attorney Ray Tierney visited Hampton Bay's American Legion Post 424 last week to discuss, among other things, his vow to bring back shot spotter technology to Suffolk County, a high-tech crime-fighting system that uses microphones deployed in a given area to identify when a gun has been fired. Quote, you guys don't have a big gun problem, Ray Tierney told a chuckling and supportive crowd gathered last Wednesday for a meet and greet with the Suffolk County District Attorney at the American Legion's invitation. Shot spotter technology was adopted in 2011, but abandoned in Suffolk County in 2019, only to be revived when Tierney was elected District Attorney in 2021 and with $1.8 million uh, voted on in 2022 by the Suffolk County Ledge to pay for its return to 11 high-crime communities. Tom Gagola reporting on 27East.com that Tierney said the technology was warranted given the gun violence in some Suffolk County uh, communities, including nearby Shirley and Mastic Beach and Brookhaven Town, leading to his quip about the relative safety of Hampton Bays when it comes to gun violence. Half of all incidents involving guns in Suffolk County, he said, occur on less than 1% of the county's sprawling landmass, Quote, and most of it is gang-related. He said, adding that criminality radiates outward to impact places like Hampton Bays that don't otherwise have a lot of built-in criminality. The DA mentioned a recent investigation which highlighted ongoing gang activity on Long Island. The indictment included two Southampton Town men who were charged with dealing narcotics that Southampton Town Police Chief James Kiernan said had included lots of illicit sales in Hampton Bays and Riverside. Further east, construction on the new Stony Brook Southampton Hospital satellite emergency room in East Hampton is underway, and the $40 million facility is now expected to be up and running by late 2024, about a year later than the hospital had originally hoped. Michael Wright reporting on 27East.com that when it opens, the 22,000-square-foot facility on Pantago Road will host a variety of medical services that the ER uh, at the hospital provides, allowing those in need of urgent care to be treated quicker and then transported to the hospital for more advanced care if needed or perhaps saving many the trip west altogether. 
The facility will cut the amount of time an ambulance from Montauk can get a patient into a doctor's care in half and will save those from Springs and Emma Gansett more than 30 minutes of travel time, even in the lower traffic seasons. And finally, alpacas on the loose and oversized Children's Playhouse and a greenhouse design that appears to include stone fireplaces are a few of the complaints from Butter Lane Bridgehampton residents and their lawyers about a years-long battle with neighbor Adam Shapiro at 625 Butter Lane. Accused of ignoring or manipulating restrictions on an agricultural reserve when he purchased the property, formerly a tree farm about eight years ago, Tom Gagola reporting on 27East.com that the ongoing dispute over Shapiro's uses for the property to date is being addressed today when the Southampton Town Planning Board is having a public hearing. The board is expected to consider a proposed covenant amendment to the original covenant that created the reserve uh, some 25 years ago during a subdivision of Butter Lane Properties. The amendment would reconfigure the footprint of the reserve to accommodate animal husbandry already underway there. Attorney John Bennett is representing Shapiro and says his client has suffered all these ad hominem slings and arrows as he set out to buy and restore the tree farm while also bringing in the alpacas and a flock of chickens too. Bennett said Shapiro hired a full-time arborist when he bought the property and now there are a thousand trees up there up from 400. That's the quote. And that complaints about, uh, for example, the Jumbo Playhouse are misplaced, if not uncaring. Martha Reichert is representing Shapiro's Bridgehampton neighbor, Dr. Michelle Green, and says Shapiro has blown past normal town processes while playing one town agency off the other through a duplicitous strategy where Bennett has deliberately sown confusion while his client continues to do whatever he wants on the reserve. Reading the weather here in Southampton, looking like a partly sunny Thursday with a high near 65 degrees, northeast wind, 11 to 14 miles per hour tonight, a chance of showers before 2 a.m., then rain likely after that time, mostly cloudy otherwise with a low around 59 degrees, east wind, 11 to 13 miles per hour. Right now it's 59 degrees, and in honor of Conrad uh, hold on one second. Conrad Jordan and Johnny Blood's track, Imaginary Walls. I've got the Walls edition prepared for you this morning. Lost in the Trees, the Style Council, Billy Strings, and Dan Fogelberg in your immediate listening future. But first, a little Leonard Skinner right here on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. Sunshine is when I went to work Digging ditches for the chain gang Sleeping in the hole Oh Lord, please forgive me For I could not wait to roll And I'm coming home to see you, Jesus Well, it feels so close this time Please take mercy on a soldier from the Florida Georgia line. When they find me, they must kill me. Oh, Jesus, save my soul. I can't go back down to Rayford. I can't take that anymore.
last few years behind me Oh Lord, it's been so sad I fought proudly for my country When the times were bad Now they say I'm guilty When they find me I must die Only me and Jesus know That I never stole a dime Well, when Vietnam was over, there was no work here for me. I had a pretty wife awaiting, and two kids I had to feed. Well, I'm one of America's heroes, and when they shoot me down, won't you fly, oh glory, proudly, put my medals in the ground. And I'm coming home to see you, Jesus. Well, it feels so close this time. Please take mercy on a soldier from the Florida Georgia line. When they find me, they must kill me. Oh, Jesus, save my soul. I can't go back down to Rafer. I can't take that anymore. Is anyone else sneezing, eyes leaking, nose leaking? Oh my God, allergy people, I am with you today and this week. Leonard Skinner to Lost in the Trees, this wooden walls of this forest church. I'll follow the path of a white dove. Wooden walls of this forest church protect me from falling stone. And what have I learned? The coward is so concerned. If the sun will come out and burn all who went out of turn. And I think that you're alive. Done just fine. You don't always have to get it right, get it right the first time. So I'll follow Never know. 
Little Style Council, Walls Come Tumbling Down from our favorite shop record of 1985, going to last year. Billy Strings' version of Stone Walls and Steel Bars from the Me and Dad record. Dan Fogelberg on deck. And you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM 88.3 on the FM dial. Throughout eastern Long Island and coastal Connecticut, 96.9 in central and western Suffolk County. Streaming online to wherever you may be at WLIW.org slash radio.
just to escape for right now from her windows and walls windows and walls windows and Timing the hours must be the loneliest sound. She washes the dishes and waters her flowers, and afterwards has to sit down. Sometimes she still can remember a child. Playing with china dolls. Now all that she's left are these memories and windows and walls. Windows and walls. Windows. And Windows and walls Day after day 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 Windows and Music from all decades and genres. That's the title track from Dan Fogelberg's 1984 record, Windows and Walls. I've actually got wind and walls on deck, the tallest man on earth. But first, it's our Thoughtful Thursday segment. Very excited to welcome into the studio for the first time for this segment, Tawana Fulford of the Butterfly Effect Project here in the WLI WFM studio. Good morning, Tia. Good morning. Thank, thank you for you having for, me. Thank you for being with us. So before we get into the book, BEP has some news. You guys got wheels? Yes, we did. I'm super excited. First Baptist Church um, donated a bus in impeccable condition. Um, Nancy Ryer um, donated um, and sponsored funding to get the bus up and up and ready and road ready and make a few little small changes. And then Fisher Signs and Shirts <gasps> donated. We love Ron. Absolutely. Um, him and J- Ron and Jerry donated to pretty much swag the bus out. They really wrapped the, literally wrapped the bus for free. And they wrapped the bus in honor of Michael Hubbard, Nancy Ryer's son. And it was such an emotional moment, I think, for all three entities. Um, well, all four entities. Just to be able to see him. And see her response, and it was it was something that no one took lightly. Like I have to tell you, like Fisher Signs and Shirts were incredible, thoughtful on how they wrapped and what they, they wanted to are. be, and it was just and like you can you can see like they understood this was not an ordinary wrap. Mm-hmm. So like they were they strived for perfection and they executed it. You know, I thought of Ron when I was reading my fabricated truth, the time my mirror deceived he's me because <laughs> he's in there. Yes. And is, you know, is, is he based on, you know, is there, is there some Ron in there or did you just, just No, there is some Ron in there. Oh, we love that. So there is, so when I wrote the book, I um, take personalities um, that's around me and turn them into people. I mean, the protagonist's name is Tina. It's not far from Tia. <laughs> well, the funny thing is when I wrote the book, I had a lot of people thinking that it was my um, autobiography and I'm thinking... Hey, it's 57 pages long. I got yeah, a lot more story. You tell. got a lot of stuff to say. Yeah. Um, but the book is um, thought-provoking. It's supposed to make you read the book, and you should have three reactions. Oh, you have a lot. Of, I had reactions, like, the whole time. Right. Um, the, you should, one, start, like, thinking about how you view people. 
And the things that you say in your head, those quiet places, things that we say. Um, two, you should be automatically upset with me. Oh, my God. She's such a Karen. <laughs> the, the protagonist. Right. And you're but she just has like, no idea. Oh, she has no, she has zero clue. She has no idea. The whole way through. <laughs> well, at least, so I saw a different version from what folks got. <laughs> I got, I got like the first draft. And so I was like, I don't know if, I don't know if it's done, but it was like the letters from the editor about finishing it. No, those are actually my letters. So oh, like, I you, literally, is that to you to yourself? I literally talked like, to myself. You're like, Tia, it's getting late in the book here. Yes. We got to, here's the things that we need to do. Here's where we need to go in the next chapter. Yeah, so it's, it's, so as I'm writing a book, I have ideas popping in my head. It's like these characters are coming to life in my head. And I'm afraid that I'm going to lose what's coming in my head while trying to write what's happening. Right. So I literally write myself a different note where I'm yelling at myself. Yeah, at I loved it. Like, that was my favorite part. It was like, Tia. Da, 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 da. And it's yeah. kind of like this kind of how I want to end it. Yeah. So when I'm writing it, it kind of gives me like guidelines on, you know, what I should be, where I'm, where I'm, where is it going? You mentioned thought provoking. Yes. You had an event. At, you, I, I saw on face on the face space. You were at the Riverhead Library yesterday. Yes. Was that connected to the book? Yes. So um, we were on this book tour, and each tour is completely different. But the Riverhead Library tour was probably the most interesting. Incredible tour. And the reason I say that is because um, it was with everything that's happening in, in Riverhead School District right now. Like OMG. Ca- yeah. So that people linked those particular incidents to things that were happening in the book. Well, you know what? There's a lot going on in the district. Yes. Particularly around race, religion uh, and prejudice. Yes. And um, I don't know if folks have had enough uh, outlets to talk about them quite right. yet. And they haven't. And then they haven't had the spaces where they can talk. So when we were at the event yesterday, um, a black woman there said it always puzzles her when we're having these conversations that there are white people in the room, but they don't say anything. Mm. And that's a great question, right? And, and again, there were white people in the room when she said that. And so for me, I, I'm not white, but I said, let me just play devil's advocate here right sometimes you know like they need, might want to they in the society that we live in today everything that you say you don't have an opportunity to think about what you said mm. like because you're saying your truth but when you use the wrong word like them um they like you know all these words that are trigger warnings for certain people um, depending on how you use them, could make it hard. And and the the trigger warning space right. grows all the time. It grow, right. It could make it hard to try to um, express yourself because because right. language. I tell people it's so funny about the English language. It could mean so many um, different things. Diction, so many diction is so. Mm-hmm. You, there are let's say five words that mean the same thing, but yep. you can have five different reaction depending on which word you choose. And then there is there is a cultural barrier, and the cultural barrier people think you know that it doesn't exist, but it definitely exists because like in the black community, this is like a joke that we always say when we say something twice, we we genuinely. It means something different. So if you say, Tia, is it cold outside? Me talking to Gianna would be like, oh, yeah, it's really cold outside. You would need a coat. Mm-hmm. Shanissa may be like, Tia, is it cold outside? And I might be like, it's cold, but it's not cold, cold. Mm-hmm. You would be like, what does that mean? Where Shanissa would be like, oh, okay, I'm going to bring a jacket. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, like, so it's like these little things Hello that no one Hello to Shanissa, by the way. <laughs> can, you, can you talk a little bit about who Shanissa Absolutely. is Absolutely. So you? Shan- Shanissa is, so Shanissa was um, a former head JV. She was happy feet. She hailed from the Bellport chapter, uh, went through the program, graduated. Then she was off to California to fit him, graduated. Ca- Wait, did you come last time? Were, no, did you nope. bring her? Okay. Nope, that was, those are different JVs. I'm trying to think about it because someone was going off somewhere yep, far well, away. Yeah, well, Tasia, she's off. Okay. Um, yep, the girls, they're all off into college. Okay. That came. Um, she came back as our visual coordinator, community liaison, school ambassador. So she has like roles like, and now tour manager. Um, so like she has a thousand Shanissa, roles. I gotta ask you. I gotta ask she has you a baby how. In there. Wow, you baking one? She's yes. baking one. Oh my <laughs> yeah. God, me too. It's a so little dragonfly. Tell, tell me, congrats to you. Thank you. How has BEP? And what you learned and experienced there 
helped prepare you for who who you are today? It's been so long that it's like I'm still like trying to take in the impact. Very because you early. don't know when you're when it's when it's your life, right? It just BP so quickly became a lifestyle for me, not yeah. just a program. I became a part of it. Makes like I have to sit down and be like. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have thought to had done this. You have to meet a lot of people that that didn't yes. have yeah. the butterfly effect project. Yeah, to ground them, to to grow them. Mm-hmm. It's been an it's been an amazing experience. The last you figure I've been a part of the program for eight or nine years because we're going on our ten year has been an experience, an experience that I was willing to come back and you know give another girl or a group of girls the same experience I had because Thank Tia you, was able to <laughs> like, Tia was able to you know do what the butterfly effect was meant to do what brought you back from the west coast when did you come home uh what was that march of 22 okay i graduated um i did my 2 years straight through i graduated um and it was just you know being on the west coast by myself with no family was rough girl i know Tia was to the point where she was calling me every morning oh <laughs> Um, and with the time That's difference, love. it was like she was calling me on her way in, but it's like I'm still up at 5, 6 o'clock in the morning there. So it just got to a point where it's like um, I, I was tired. Yeah. I needed to come home. And she's like, well, what do I need to do for you to come home? I and I'm like, this. I don't know, but I want to come home. And she's like, well, let me make some calls. And within like a day or two, she was like, we can figure it out. Let this me know is a woman who home. will make it happen yeah. no matter what it is. No matter what. Always and still is. So so back to last night, what came from the conversation, if anything? Um, I think <laughs> some harsh realities and truths, mm. but also a little bit of understanding. And some like, so we had, you know, in the book, there is a part where the ending. So the ending is a question. It's so many questions that one question. So and I don't want to. We, we, I mean, we should talk a bit about yeah. what the book is about. So this is a series. So the book is called My Fabric. The series is called My Fabricated Truth. Is it all? It's not all the same character, though, no. right? So this, so this focuses on one woman's yes. journey with with race. Yes. So uh, My Fabricated Truth: The Time the Mirror to See Me is focused on a woman's journey with race and she and her how she moves with her everyday life with all these different things going. How she navigates it until she finds out something about herself that changes everything she knew. And then once she finds that out, then she has a question that either she tells the truth or she doesn't. And the question really is, for the audience, is if you had an opportunity to rewrite and reevaluate yourself, understanding what you know about the world and the world that you live in today, so understanding the sacrifices and the things that you are willing to gain and give up, would you do it? And the kind of the uh, my fabricate you series is really to get the reader to question themselves and stop pointing the finger at everybody else and point your at yourself a little bit. Um, and it's it's even though it's about race, it, it's so much deeper than that. Like the relationship with your mother. Like as young people, we know like anything that happened to us is our parents' fault. This is the easiest way to explain it. But until you until you come to a place where you realize that. No matter yes. what you went through, the choices you it's make today yours. are yours. And not only that, parents can only do what, what they can do with the tools they're given and at the right. at the and who they are and at who the they time. are and the, and, and the time frame. Right. So you have to think about like in twenty twenty three, the stuff that we tell our children is not okay or is okay is completely different than what my parents told me in yes. nineteen eighty three. Yes. You know, so it's like Yes, ma'am. Like, right. So I mean <laughs> look at look at the ways like just in parenting styles. Parenting styles have completely, completely different changed. And so I like the book really makes you reevaluate all of these things about ourselves and all the blames that we put on somebody else. Even with Tina and her husband, her fiance, she loves her fiance so much. She tells us that, but she's afraid to tell him a secret that has everything to do with him, mm-hmm. you know, that has something to do with their ch- their child. And you, it's not. Can even I give a, the? Can I give the the, the abs- basics? It's that. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is a a woman a, a a identifying white woman. Her fiance is a cop. Yep. Um, and Trump supporter. Mm-hmm. And uh, she is pregnant, and she finds out that. Her child has sickle cell anemia. Okay, and sh- and this is where the the journey begins. This is where the journey begins. 
And then she, she, you know, she talks to her her mother and she's exploring the, the story of herself. Right. I especially appreciated the part where she is so rude to her OB. Yes. <laughs> about the time thinking that uh, she's late, but uh, the doctor was not late. <laughs> And she, she's very rightfully embarrassed. That was a moment that I really appreciated because I was like, I really wanted her to get checked a little bit, uh, even early on in right. the story. But I'm so I'm not surprised at all that this this story and this book was one that sparked a passionate conversation. Yes, especially in in uh, 2023. Right. In you know, because this this book is set just a couple years ago, right? So the funny thing is, I wrote the book during 2020, right? And I wrote the book because at the I wrote the book directly for Riverhead High School because at the time they were having a lot of um, situations happening, and they I didn't feel like they were put in a position where they can really help because if it didn't happen in school. You know, it's kind of like, what can we do? But you have to find a way to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And you have to find a way where the children can talk about these hard issues without saying, I feel, or whatever. But now, what I did was allow them to say, Tina feels, Mm -hmm. or, you know, like, you know, Ron felt. And then they can kind of identify their feelings with these characters and the books, or read this book and be like, oh my God, I act like that, Mm -hmm. or whatever, and kind of check that at the door. the interesting thing is the parents and the um, people that came last night, they were doing the very thing that the book was supposed to do. And the funny thing is I asked a question that no one was scared. Half the room was scared to touch. And I said, knowing what you know, would you have said, yes, I will say that I'm no longer this. I will identify as this or I will identify as that. No, People explained to me all the reasons of, you know, why one would. Or why one wouldn't, but they was afraid to say, I would or I wouldn't. And for me, the thing with adults is adults understand the gravity of the of English language. Where children um, or youth, they have this thing like, yeah, I definitely wouldn't do that. This is why. And they're unapologetic because they're so honest about it. Like, what are you talking about? The ending. Explain, so, explain, okay, so explain the what ending, you're doing. So at the ending, there's a question that the nurse asks Tina. And she pretty much needs to know... Is this baby white or is this baby black? And Tina is the only one that has the answer. Her husband has no idea that Tina has done this, went down this uh, rabbit hole. So I leave the book off like that because the question is, I don't want to tell you what Tina is going to say. I want the reader to have all the evidence in front of them, all the things that she has up against her, what she has to gain and or lose, if any, what would you do? God, I want to see you bring this question and this conversation this to, was a very... to Riverhead High School, to the uh, black experience uh, in America. Uh, what's that, that? Dr. Boyce. Oh, my God. Dr. Boyce is the man. Right. So I, when I tell you this, like the book, uh, the, uh, the tour was, was an hour and a half? Yes. We probably only spent about 20 minutes actually getting real questions about the book because they were bantering back and forth amongst themselves. Wow. It was very emotional. Um, people were very, it was a very hot topic. Um, and there were people in the room that had, that they, the intentions were well, but the biggest communicator de facto that we have is listening. So sometimes I need you to listen with your ears, not with your tongue. Like everything that I say does not need a response. Hear what I'm saying, process it, and then respond. Like right. you don't have to save anyone. And I think last night I kind of let them go for about 30 minutes. And finally this black guy kind of was like, listen, calm down. This is a great book. There are babies in this room. You guys are beautiful. Like it, he had to bring the room back mm-hmm. because it was it was going crazy. Ironically... The funny part about it was it wasn't a black and white going crazy. Mm-hmm. It was more of a white on white, different, different. They were the ones that were like. Interesting. That was a very different. I, I was That was the first eyewitness of that um, dynamic. But, but because of that, what, what the difference was, we have white women who have biracial children. Mm-hmm. And then we have white women who do not have biracial children. So the book definitely hit home for them in a very different 
matter because now we're, you know, I, when I wrote the book, I was thinking about black children, white children, but to think about biracial children, right? So now you have this, this baby who essentially would be biracial, um, but that would be considered black. And the and the identity journey for a biracial person is completely different com- and very exactly. hard. Yes, very and very, very hard. Um, so like you when you have that mom in that room in that space, she's she's going in because she's protecting her kids and she knows firsthand right. what her kids' life has been like and how it's so different from hers. Or walking into a school and feeling like they see you until they realize that's your daughter. And finally having the opportunity to talk, to about, talk about this, it, like this creating thing. this space. Yeah. So it was really um, a proud moment, to be honest with you, because it's like, wow, this is what this book is supposed to be doing. Well, and it's also exactly what the community needs, needs right they now. They needed that. I, I really like, you know, I, I've been very sadly hearing uh, not only the horrible incidents that I've heard in just in the past week or so coming from from the district and and from the community, uh, but the past year or more. And uh, it really feels like there needs to be so much more programming, conversation, and intervention... Protocol. ...done, you know, with the kids, and that it's, it's sort of been like dealing with whatever's at hand... Oh, you know, disciplinary actions and and then just kind of brushing it away. It seems like, you know, there really needs to be more done uh, for and with the kids. I think for me, and I'm being very honest, I, you, I mean, you 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 you're head of the Butterfly Effect Project and, you know, more than anyone. The Riverhead Central School District, any school district, I can honestly say I feel lack of. A couple things. And the main thing is anyone can say DEI. Anyone can have a DEI statement. But DEI is not just words. It's actually how you run the school. And I will say, you know, that I can see a lot of positive changes that they're, um, that especially in Riverhead Center schools are working on. That's good to hear. I, I, I'm being honest. Like, I've seen, like, new hires and stuff like that. I see that. Like That's I'm, good to hear. I get to see that. Um, but the community doesn't see it because it's internal. And the problem is when you're fixing a problem, you have to fix it at the ground level sometimes. So by the time it comes to um, me and you, it's like they're not doing nothing, but they are. But it's so many things they have to do. It's like, where do we start? For me, the issue with the school, I personally think, is they need to have a living protocol like a living code of conduct based around diversity that the children create. And, and the reason why it needs to be living because it has to have room to change mm-hmm. and it needs to be boundaries. So it needs to say, if you do this in our school, this is considered this. So in our school, in River High School, if you call somebody the N-word, if you write anything anti-Semitic to us, it's considered a hate crime and this is the punishment. We do not care. If you've never been in trouble again, we do not care if you're a part that's, of honor That's rule. zero tolerance. It's right zero. There. T- yeah. It has to be zero tolerance. And right now in the Riverhead School District, it's based differently. If you've never been in trouble, but you called me the N word, your punishment so is going to be completely different. So they're saying it's zero tolerance when, but in it fact, is tolerance. What there, it, it, there it is, is tolerance. Some you're saying, and it's tolerance because that's the way they're. Their conduct code is, is written out, but you have your school conduct, but you need to create a living document that the children can create with the uh, make a committee of children, not outside, because yeah, this is the thing. I like that you're talking about including the kids, because it seems We're like the, they're the it ones seems who like are a culture. Upset. It seems like the uh, there is there is an there is an a, there's anger. There's division. Trauma. And with the kids. With the, and they explain. need to be part of it. Here's a topic that no one wants to talk about. If you think about um, some of the fights that are happening, some of the racial tensions that are happening, and then think about the alarming number of black and brown kids that are being suspended for fighting, no one sends their kids to school like, hey, Tia, if she says something to you, knock her lights out. But that means something must have happened to this child, to this family, where the parent says, you know what, you better freaking defend yourself. Like, you need, like, so what's happening is parents are telling their children, you need to defend yourself because they understand that when they go to school and something happened, there is no protection for my child. So, like, we are now teaching our children, defend yourself, and I'm what I, and then call me. I seen a fight, um, 
like I seen a fight, like I seen a video of a fight where I watched a young girl go into the bathroom, make a phone call to mom. And you must like me being a black mom. I know that call. This is happening. I seen when she went in, she seemed like when she came out, she came out with, and she understood the assignment. She came out, she put a book bag on one side and started fighting. Wow. So to me, I'm watching that with other people in the room and they don't see what I see. I see a parent intervening in the school policy because this is the only way her daughter is going to get help. That's what I saw. So it's really important that the school bring children to the table and listen to what the children well, shoot, are saying. It, now I'm really thinking that the parents should be involved in this as well so that the parents understand what is appropriate and what is not and how to, right. you know. So like if you're a child. Don't give bad advice. But, but this is the thing. Is it bad advice or is it protection mode? Oh, yeah. I you see know. like, and that's the thing. Like it sounds like bad advice. What do you think? You... Did you go to Riverhead High School? No, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> I went to um, Patrick Medford. Okay. Um, But it definitely is the idea of protection mode because you walk into like the schools and environments and you ultimately, we have no protection. Yeah. Um, so I've never been in this situation, but just the description of the, the video that she saw, she had no other choice because it got to the point where she had to isolate herself, call home, and there had to be instances beforehand. Why wasn't it addressed beforehand? It's just so sad because you, cause you're, you're thinking this is someone who does not feel protected by staff the adults that she's around on a yeah. daily basis yeah and in and, and, and grade school you're around your teachers and administration and schools more than your home mm-hmm. and that doesn't even include the kids that decide to do you know extra extra help sports they're in, they're in school from seven to three seven you're, to six sometimes this is exactly where we're talking about systemic racism and the ways in which it plays out mm-hmm. in ways that you know it's like you really need to be, you need to look at the top and say, we're doing something wrong. Right. If kids feel that they need to, and parents feel that they, that this is their only option. And you have to think about the two, the kids that were pushed down in the, at the Riverhead Central School District. Imagine those kids five years from now. Right. They're going to have a completely different experience. And they're, so they're going to be guarded moving forward. So they're going to be quicker to temper, quicker to anger, quicker to fight because they realize that I was pushed down in a public school setting. And, and what called. happened? And what? Nothing and, happened. Wh- like what did security the, do? The, no, no one right. did anything. Then this girl went all over like social media still talking about it. Right. Nothing happened. Mr. Bubby Brown, who's been an advocate, Brown. an advocate for the school. Yeah. And, you know, and, and again, the school can legally not say what they did. They can't release names. So for a lot of the public, it's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And because they can't, they can't say what they did or they or they didn't do. The community is like, they did nothing. Mm. And that is why you need the a document so that way we can say, this is our rules. If you do this, this is what's happening. So at least the parents can realize that this happened. We're gonna we're about to get cut off in wow. a minute here. I don't I don't care that we went over time. <laughs> this was an important conversation. Um probably the most important one we've had all year here on the show. Tia, it is always an honor. It was so great to meet. You. We um, will be back after the NPR news break at the top of the hour. The book is called My Fabricated Truth, The Time My Mirror Deceived Me. It's the first in the series. Where can folks go to get it, Tia? Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, anywhere you can buy a book, we're there. I'm Gianna Volpe. That was Tijuana Fulford. And your name again? Shanissa Thames. Shanissa Thames. And you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. And you just heard the Thoughtful Thursday segment on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM, streaming online wherever you may be at WLIW.org slash radio.